You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty God, once again, we give you thanks for uh, these three epistles from John. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would help us to see your truth in them uh, and, moreover, your love as well, uh, the two being linked, truth and love. So we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, come on in. And Nancy, it's apropos that you walked in, not to call you out, but I did the homework. I did the homework that I said I would do, and I looked up uh, that little question. So from 1 John chapter 2, that verse, uh, and he's not only the propitiation for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Um, that portion, actually, if you go back to the original 1549, I've got a copy of my office, and 1552 and 1662, Funny enough, it's cut off. It doesn't include the full verse. So maybe they have the wrong version of 1662. It could, it could it be. It, and maybe there are different ones, but my 49 doesn't have it. So, and again, I'm not saying uh, it was right or wrong, not weighing in on that, but um, perhaps we could say Cranmer in the original could have included the whole verse. Um, but he did not, uh, seemingly did not, in the 1549, which is uh, the original prayer book. So for those of you who weren't here, uh, this verse from John, uh, excuse me, First John. I'll, I'll read the whole verse uh, from, from the second chapter. It says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And so Cramer's version stopped right there. And the verse goes on, those. Propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So there you have it. There's a little historical historical point there right or wrong that was the answer and I'd love to show you my 1549 Gil Cracky gave me a copy of it um, years ago when I was ordained deacon and I've cherished it ever since uh, it's, it's a beautiful copy but nevertheless today we're looking at 2nd John and 3rd John I actually want to shift gears a little bit from what I kind of had proposed last week I wanted to do sort of a comparative uh, with 1st John but I want to look at 2nd and 3rd John today if y'all uh, are okay with that and if you're not sorry that's the script that's what we're doing but uh, from where y'all are seated, can you all see that reasonably well? I know the last little verse there perhaps is cut off by some of these materials, but my son goes to school here, and I've been told, yeah, we don't move those things around. Uh, and, he, and he told me that. He says, Dad, do not mess with our class. Uh, so I did not touch anything, but uh, why, don't, why don't I do this? If you'll just bear with me. Gosh, I know it's 13 verses, um, but let's just take a moment. I'm going to read it out loud. Uh, so that you all uh, don't have to read it yourselves. But this is Second John. It's just one chapter, and in my Bible, literally, half a sheet. And some scholars said, actually, if you look at Third John as well, which we'll look at in just a moment too, a little show and tell, also a half sheet uh, on our Bible. But they said, actually, given the size of papyri in those days, it might have been just one papyrus. Perfect, you know, John was cramming in the last little bit and said, okay, I'm not going to put it on another page. Uh, so literally, that's the size, perhaps, is what they kind of speculate, why they're so close in link. And I have stationery in my office, and I'm always cramming, last, you know, last minute, what am I going to say? And occasionally, I will write on the back, but usually, uh, I just have to seal it right there. So it seems like uh, John was doing the same thing even 2,000 years ago. But I'll read Second John, and uh, you all can just listen. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, in truth and love. 
I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should, uh, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Now, perhaps you've read that before, perhaps not. Uh, it's, again, a portion of Scripture that we, we often probably don't turn to. Uh, it's not one that's just commonly known. And part of the reason, probably, A, it's, it's just sort of obscure in the back of the Bible. B, it is short. You know, sometimes we kind of want meatier sections, say Romans or Corinthians or even Galatians uh, in the epistles, or Hebrews for that matter. Um, but then also, it's, it's a peculiar we're, we're reading someone's mail, it feels like, right? We're, we're reading a letter. And I want to get to that in just a minute, um, um, who it's addressed to. So it says the elder. He's talking about himself. Uh, the word is presbyter, uh, which could mean someone older. But, uh, of course, in the early church, elder, presbyter, priest, same word, uh, became sort of an office of ministry. So the elder, he doesn't say it's John, but uh, we know from the vocabulary it's the same, uh, the same author there. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. We'll get more in a minute. So the elect lady, she's not named, right? She's anonymous. She's the elect lady. What do you make of that? It's hard to say, isn't it? It's hard to say what's going on. Well, many scholars speculate, and I do think this is probably the best, the best interpretation uh, elect lady. If you read Revelation, you read some of uh, Paul's letters, the church is often feminine. It's occasionally called a mother or a lady. And in this case, it seems like he's talking to the church. So the elect lady, and Christians called themselves the elect. Uh, some translations say the chosen. But he's saying to the church, to the chosen uh, body there, this, this uh, congregation to whom I'm writing, and her children, that is the believers in the community. That's kind of a different take, right? You probably, I've read it always as just some old gal and her, you know, her kids and grandkids and I love her and I love all that they're about. But as you put on that different uh, lens of reading it, you say, okay, he's talking to the church and he's, he's edifying the church, not just, not that it would be bad, actually it'd be really nice uh, to have correspondence with individuals and I'm sure they did. Uh, but this seems to be sort of a, uh, if you will, uh, a sort of a, a template. And this could have been passed to many churches. And so John perhaps wrote sort of a, a template letter that could have been passed uh, throughout various congregations. And so again, the children, uh, those are the believers in that congregation. Again, this is uh, what I find to be the best scholarship on this. You can take issue with it. Uh, but again, to edify the believers there. And you notice he comes right out of the gate and he's talking about love and truth. And these two ideas and knowledge is of the truth 
they seem to be uh, intertwined. You can't have truth or knowledge without love, and you can't have love without truth or knowledge. And again, this is what we see uh, in 1 John, and I'm thinking next week we'll tie it all up looking more at 1 John. But also from John's Gospel itself, what does Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Emphasizing truth all throughout, uh, even in his own person. But he goes on, he says, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So the truth that's been given, remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Uh, this truth that we've had all along that abides in us now, and it's also future-oriented, that will be with us forever. So it's, it's a, a thrusting into God's eternity that we'll have this truth uh, literally forever. And this is kind of a Pauline kind of phrase here. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father Son. Again, in truth and love. So I said that's kind of a Pauline formula you often find in Paul's letters. And John is undoubtedly later than, than Paul. Uh, the church has had time to develop um, just probably a couple of decades, a few decades. But gosh, just think about what can happen in a church in a decade. Think about where we were 10 years ago. Think about where we might be in 10 years uh, here at the Cathedral Church of the Advent. It, uh, things take time, but often they don't take as much time as you think. And so the church is developed and developing, uh, so much so that he calls himself an elder. Uh, again, that's an office of ministry. Uh, you, all, you all know this, but elder, the word presbyter, when we say priest, it's the same word. It's the anglicized English version of the Greek word presbyter or presbyteros. And so our Presbyterian friends keep that word uh, sort of transliterated, not translated, but the English church has always preferred the word priest. And so that's not to be confused with Old Testament priest. That's a different word, Kohen, and that's one who would offer sacrifice. Our version of priest is elder. Um, and I know I don't have a lot of gray in my hair yet, but I am getting some. And so the, the title is beginning to start to fit. But, uh, but John undoubtedly has probably read some of Paul's letters, and they've picked up that language, grace, mercy, and peace. Um, and again, this goes back to the synagogue. These words, particularly mercy and peace, uh, these were Jewish words as well. And you see that again, not the Trinity just yet, but an early kind of formulation of, of both God the Father and Jesus Christ the Father's Son. And so uh, John in particular, you don't talk about God without talking about Jesus. There's no God in the abstract. It's God who has been revealed in Jesus Christ and particularly uh, in glory on the cross. Uh, when Jesus talks about glory, it's always in connection with the cross in John's gospel. So why is that important? Uh, why is it important that we don't just talk about God in general? Again, they're working this out uh, in real time in the first century. There are a lot of competing ideas about God. He gets to that in just a moment. We talked last week about the Gnostics, uh, sort of that catch-all term. For those uh, who believe they had the real truth and nothing but the truth and that everyone else needed to follow them. And so you had all of these itinerant preachers uh, from various camps. And so uh, our epistles here from the Bible, this canon that we have, it lays out what the truth is, what the gospel is, who God actually is. Um, are any of you familiar with uh, Thomas Torrance, who's a uh, 20th century theologian, who's actually a Presbyterian, Scottish Presbyterian? But he emphasizes this point uh, to no end. I mean, when you read Tom Torrance, uh, he can't stop talking about uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he never talks about God without talking about Jesus. There's no, he doesn't talk about God the Father. He doesn't speculate on who God the Father might be. We only know God the Father, as even Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. No one has seen the Father but me. 
And so you and I have access to God the Father because of Jesus. And so we do well to only consider and, and never speculate beyond the cross. And so this is what Torrance said. He said, there's no God hiding behind the back of Jesus. In other words, what you see on the cross is what you get. This is God. This is God. You might want to go around the cross and say, well, he, he really wouldn't associate with criminals. He really wouldn't do that. I mean, would he die? Would he suffer? Would he bleed? And uh, John's answer and Tom Torrance 2,000 years later is saying, absolutely. That's who God is. So again, this is just the address. There's so much in it already. And I know I've added some, just kind of my own understanding and scholars about who the elect lady is. But that unlocks, I think, a little bit of what's going on. Now, bear with me. We're not going to read all of 3 John. But I want, to see, I want you to see some similarities, so a touch longer, literally two verses longer. But notice this time, again, the elder, uh, this is 3 John chapter, or only chapter, verse 1. The elder to the beloved uh, Gaius, whom I love, again, in truth, love and truth. Now this one's more specific, and again, there are Gaius's, Gaius-y, I don't know how the plural of Gaius would be, uh, mentioned in Acts, but we have no indication that any Gaius from Acts, it's a common name in the first century, uh, much like John was, much like uh, many of these names that we read in the New Testament. Many Gaius out there. And so we don't know who it is, but it's more specific. Unlike the first letter, this is specific. And as you read the letter, you'll notice other names. Uh, Demetrius in verse 12, uh, Diotrephes, Diotrephes, I think that's how the emphasis should go, in verse 9. So this is, again, in real time dealing with issues in the church. And so uh, I wanted you to see similarities, though, of how he addresses uh, himself and then uh, the beloved, whom I love in truth. And notice if you go down to verse 13, he says a similar phrase. He says, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. And then again, uh, peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Don't you love all these little local peculiarities? I mean, this is the way, when we read letters, when we, when we read letters and we write letters, we have all these little things. I mean, if Paige were to write me a text or a letter, we used to occasionally write notes to each other. Now we mostly text. Uh, I know her voice. Like, I know the peculiar, I know the things that uh, she often misspells. I know the things that, <laughs> and that I often misspell, and that Siri misspells for me sometimes. Doesn't that drive you crazy when Siri misspells a word for you? You're like, uh, come on guys, we can figure this out. But the point is, we know each other's voice, and there are peculiarities. And if I were to send that kind of text to one of y'all, A, you'd probably blush. Uh, B, you'd be like, this was not intended for me. But the point is, uh, this is a lot of scholars say this is a fake letter. You know, uh, but to me, it screams authentic because of all the peculiarities and all the specifics uh, contained in it. All right, I've said a lot between the two. I want to go back to 2 John. We'll, we'll come back to 3 John. But just given what you've read... Again, I don't want to drive the whole ship, but what kind of jumps out to you from last week's discussion or otherwise? We see similar themes. I don't want to give them away just yet, but similar themes from 1 John. Well, let's jump into verse 4. He says, I rejoice greatly. Again, another John kind of phrase, uh, that our joy will be complete. I rejoice. Paul mentions this too. I mean, this is the way Christians in the first century talked. And I think... We've lost that in some ways. We need to get back to that place of joy and celebration um, among one another, the way that we talk to one another, uh, rejoice in one another. But that word walking in truth, that is very much uh, a John kind of thing to say, walking in truth. 
um, just as you were commanded by the Father. What, what is this command he's talking about? What's the command? Yeah, to love one another. Simple as that. Jesus says as much, and then uh, these epistles uh, reify that. To love one another, just as Christ has loved us, as he'll say in First John, which we may look at next week. To love one another. That's the commandment. And he goes on, he gets sort of blue in the face, he says it so much. It's not a new commandment, and yet it is a new commandment. It's not new because it's been from the beginning but it's a new and fresh word every time we experience it because it's so uncommon in this world. Just think about the world in which we live. And I'm not asking you to reveal your cards politically or theologically or socially, but just think about the polarization in our world and how public discourse in particular uh, lacks not only truth, it certainly lacks truth, but it, it lacks love, it completely lacks love. And um, that's why this is so countercultural and so new every time we experience it and yet very, very old. And it's nothing new in the sense that uh, God changed his mind. Uh, if you read the Old Testament, the, the command was to love. The command was to love both the sojourner and the neighbor, the one from afar and the one right next to you. Um, it's nothing new, and yet it feels new. So John's talking to these folks. You think they would have it figured out. They're so close to Jesus in time, and yet there's a lot of false teaching going on. And so this false teaching is really the big crux of what he's talking about here. Uh, he, he gets to the meat of the letter, uh, all this niceties up front, which is thick and, and has a lot to it. Uh, the meat of the letter really has to do with how do we treat others? How do we consider uh, false teaching? And so this is where it gets interesting for you and for me, because his ultimate uh, conclusion is do not receive these false teachers. Do not receive those who would deceive you. And I think he's talking about the teachers. In other words, there's itinerant preachers going around teaching false gospels. And he's saying, look, we don't have time for this. We, we can't let them in. It's not because we're inhospitable. It's not because we don't want to love our neighbor. But letting a false teacher in as if they were one of us, uh, that will ruin the whole lot. Uh, as Jesus says, uh, a little bit of yeast leavens the lump. And so he, I don't think it's a call to be unloving. It's not a call to be inhospitable. But as it relates to the church, the elect lady, this, this holy church that we're a part of, uh, we're not to let false teaching in, both in the first century, and I think it would extend to you and to me. So where do we draw the line on that? You know, where do we say false teaching starts and where uh, good teaching begins? Well, um, we stand up each week and we read from the canon of Scripture. You and I have received a tradition and I'm not one to question it. Uh, we're taught to be critical in class, and that's a good thing, but as, as faith goes, this is it. The canon is locked. We're not adding to it. We're not taking away from it. And then you and I each week, too, we stand and we recite either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Those are relatively short statements, and yet they say a lot about who God is and who the church is in response. So I would say those two places, and the Anglican Church has always held the Episcopal Church, always held these to be really the standards, uh, the creeds and the scriptures, the scriptures and the creeds. Now, when we start interpreting differently, that's where things go awry, right? You could take an issue and you could just think of the issue in your head and know, gosh, there's, there's diversity of thought in this. I love the way, uh, it blew my mind in seminary when Mark Genelette talked about this. He says, you know, I consider sort of a bullseye. If a bullseye, anybody who plays darts knows what a bullseye is. But in the middle are the non-essential, or the, the essential, excuse me, the non-negotiables, the essentials that cannot be, um, that cannot be 
uh, uh, traded upon or changed. Things like the Trinity. Things like, did Jesus really live and die as a human being, fully God and fully man? Did he really resurrect? Um, those core theological issues, this is Mark Genelette, but I, again, I, I hold to this. That's the core. And to me, that's the, the, the creeds and the scriptures. Then as you go out, it's not that they're not important, but they're less important than the core. And so the next one might be, and, and this may not be for you, but for me, you know, what's going on in Holy Communion? Is it literally the body and blood of Christ? Is it transubstantiated? Is it merely a symbol? Is it somewhere in between where Christ is present and yet uh, it's not exactly his flesh and blood as such? You know, there's, a, there's a spectrum there. I say it's important that we talk about that kind of thing, but it's not, and again, this is me, it's not the core. You could say it was the core, and if you were Catholic, by golly, it is the core. Um, then you go out further and you say, okay, uh, gosh, women in ministry, uh, do we speak in tongues, uh, all, so on and so forth. Not that they're not important, but they go out, and then go out really far. Do we wear suits to church? <laughs> do we wear blue jeans? Not important, way out there, off the board. My point in saying all that is uh, there is a core to Christian teaching. And at some point we're going to disagree as you go out. But the core we can't disagree on. And that's what they're working out in the first century. They're not fighting over um, you know, uh, the issues that you and I often fight over. They're not fighting over worship style. They're not fighting over I mean, secondary and tertiary issues. They're fighting, literally fighting, over who God is and who the church is. And so that's kind of what I want to hold out to you is... Uh, you're not in a position probably to be inviting teachers and preachers in, uh, but taking this word for yourself, it's not calling you to be a jerk. It's not calling you to be inhospitable, but it is saying in the church, we're not to have that come in. Does that make sense? Is that you click, clicking with that at all? Anybody want to challenge that point? Yeah. I think that's what's going on here. Uh, and so again, you think, gosh, aren't we supposed to be hospitable? Yes, we are. And so the people who believe those things, absolutely. We welcome them into our home. We feed them. We clothe them, etc. cetera, uh, as Jesus says in Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, but it, when it comes to the teachers, we're not to allow that in the church. So I'll leave it at that. But that is the meat of Second John, uh, that we would be assured in the truth, uh, and that truth and love go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. All right, let's go to Third John then. We've only got a few more minutes. Again, similar in much of its structure, uh, but different in that the first one seems to be sort of a template letter, and this really is very specific. Again, he addresses them in verse 2 as beloved. He loves that word. And remember, John talks a lot about the beloved disciple in his gospel. Many scholars speculate that he's talking about himself. He says, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. Again, very specific. As it goes well with your soul. Again, I rejoiced, I have joy greatly when the brothers, and that little note, the A, the ESV translates Adelphoi as brothers, but often it can be brothers and sisters. It's not meant to be so gendered, but uh, any of you who studied sort of uh, Western languages, oftentimes uh, masculine is a catch-all. When the brothers or brothers and sisters came and testified to your truth, there's truth again, as indeed you are walking in the truth. That same phrase, walking in the truth. Abiding in the truth, walking in the truth. I have no greater joy, can't miss it, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So that my children, again, this is that elder speaking. The children are the flock, the believers in the church. Not literally little children, but certainly not excluding them, but it's all of us. We, we are the children. 
and uh, we're called to walk in that truth as well. So again, beloved, beloved, this language is dripping with affection. And I hope that we can, we can rescue some of that in our church and our dialogue. It is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers or brothers and sisters, strangers as they are, and this is why they're allowed in, who testified to your love before the truth, uh, they testified to God's truth uh, is really why they're let in. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So you have all these congregations around the Mediterranean, and it's not like, um, like us. We have denominational titles. At this point in time, it really is location. You know, I'm, I'm from Alexandria, or I'm from Jerusalem, or I'm from Corinth, or I'm from, uh, and so on and so forth, Philippi. Denominations haven't been really worked out yet, and they won't be for a very long time. It really is local church. You see local church very much in these early epistles. And so uh, there is sort of an element of trust as they're kind of talking among themselves. They're getting to know one another. And what binds them together? Well, it's their love for one another, but they share the same truth. They share the same truth. They've got the bullseye down. They share in the bullseye. It's just fascinating to think about that. I mean, have you thought about that for a moment? That they don't get on a plane or a train or an automobile. I mean, they are, they're riding to each other. It often takes weeks and days and months to get to different places. And so you can imagine if you had a church in Birmingham, you had a church in Huntsville and a church in Montgomery, and it took weeks to correspond, over time, things would develop differently. I mean, could you imagine that? And they do. Of course, now we live in an age where if you tweet something instantly, people across the world can hear it and know it. And in some ways, I'm thankful for that. But in other ways, um, it, may, it puts us so in charge, doesn't it? I think this, this model, which again is historical, it's, it's an accident of history. <coughs> they were fully dependent on God's Spirit to bind all this together. Not technology, not man's prowess, uh, but trusting that the Spirit's doing the same thing in Philippi that He's doing in Corinth. Or at least similar enough. It may not be identical, but similar enough. And it all goes back to that same old story that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. That's the truth that binds them together. Okay, well, I don't want to dictate this. There's a lot going on here. But I do want you to take note of that, that the particular peculiarities of the local church here. And you see that in Paul's letters. You see that a little bit in a couple of the other ones. But really, John and Paul draw this out the most. And just think for a moment, in your own church life, your own life as a Christian, uh, how that plays out. You know, where's the truth and love in our life? Where, where do we apply this? Well, again, the truth is non-negotiable. But at the same time, we have to say the love is non-negotiable too. They are flip sides of the same coin in, in God's uh, economy. You cannot have one without the other. All right, let's stop there for just a minute. Anything jump out to you? Y'all are a little sheepish this morning. That's okay. <laughs> that means I'm not doing a good job drawing it out. Yeah, no, I love what you said, the urgency to be with one another. And you and I, we've all tasted that these last few years with COVID. You know, remember shutdown and we couldn't see your loved ones? We were forced to Zoom. We were forced to, you know, make phone calls when we otherwise would have been in person. And again, all the more so in the first century where they didn't even have that option. They really longed to be with one another. And again, I think we as Christians, uh, we long, we do long to be with one another. We often think of church as just merely a place we gather on Sundays uh, simply to Check the box, you know, I worshiped, I received communion, I heard the word, check, check, check. Uh, but what John is saying, what Nancy's kind of drawing out, there is a fellowship, there's a warmth, there's a joy, there's a gratitude, uh, there's a love. Some of this building wouldn't even be here, you know? I mean, there's a reason, a place to have a place to 
Yeah. And Sundays, I think, are paramount. That's the most important thing we do as Christians. And that's the primary way in which we congregate. But I'm so thankful for small group ministry. I'm so thankful for all the other ways that we gather in homes, at coffee shops. Again, not because not because you you know you find the other people just so lovely you can't but because we're bound in love by the spirit we're bound and maybe these aren't the people you would have picked we all have you know friends outside of this room we all have friends outside of this church and usually we'll gravitate towards those people but we've been bound together with this flock and so it's important that we do have uh, that bond of love and fellowship uh, here in this place not saying you have to know everybody's name that's my new burden to remember everybody's name. But, um, but it is funny. He does say, uh, call each other by name in Third John. Look in that verse. He says, um, verse 15, Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Isn't that beautiful? And again, it's a John point, but in John's gospel, Jesus knows the sheep each by name, and the sheep know his voice. It's really something. And the psalmist says, of course, that uh, God knows every hair on our head. It's so specific. Grace is so specific. It's not general. It knows the hair on your head to the number. And so in the church, we extend that same grace to one another, remembering each other's names, or trying to at least, caring for one another. And that's sort of my, this is off script, uh, you know, I've, I've stepped into this role as canon pastor, and I've got massive shoes to fill from Dean Smalley, who did this for 10 years, but... Uh, my prayer and my hope for this place is that we care for one another to that depth. That it's not shallow, it's not vapid, it's, it's, it's deep, uh, and it's, it's bound by God's Spirit. Thank you, Nancy, that was really profound. What else? And again, from 2nd or 3rd John, I know 3rd John's before you, but they're similar. They, they are similar because you're still dealing with that false teaching. No. Yeah, you, you can't distinguish it unless you've got the truth. Um, it's sort of like darkness and light. Again, another John kind of phrase. If we live in darkness, we don't know what light is. We can't distinguish between light and dark. But if you live in light, you know the difference. You know the difference. But again, what is that, what is that truth? Um, it's living and walking according to, to love. Not in a legalistic manner. I don't think John is undermining Paul and saying you have to follow the rules to be loved by God. You're already loved by God. This is who you are. Live into is what he's saying. Easier said than done, I know. And that's the messiness of, of human life in church is when, when rubber hits the road and you actually have to apply these things, that's when it gets hard. But that's why we're continually reminded of, of who we are in Christ. That truth and love, that's how you distinguish. Is love in it? then it, if it's not, then God's not in it, as we're trying to say. Truth is paramount, but truth in relation to love especially. And this is where we can get off the track so quickly, those of us you know, in the Episcopal Church and those of us who might consider ourselves Orthodox or whatever, and I'm not naming you, uh, but we can have the truth part worked out, right? We've got the bullseye, we've got the creed, we've got the scriptures, but often, this is a word to me more than it is to you, often we miss the love part. And if we look at first century Christianity, which again is the paradigm of what it means to be a Christian, how this thing got started, you need not go back even further just to Christ's words to know what that means. If you don't have the love part, then all the truth is sort of, uh, it's a moot point. And it will never, it'll never catch on with anybody. And it's a false truth anyways if it doesn't have love. It's, it's deficient. It's missing the key ingredient, as we talked about in the Rally Day skit last week. The key ingredient, which is God's love.
These are quirky, funny little letters, uh, especially as you read uh, the rest of the New Testament. But I love that they're here. I love that they're here because if they weren't here, we might miss sort of that urgency to be with one another. We might miss the urgency uh, uh, to, to know each other's name and to, to be loved by one another. And so this is often lumped in what scholars call the Catholic epistles. And when they say Catholic, they don't mean the Roman church, but they mean you have the Gospels, you have the um, Paul's epistles, the general epistles, which are called the Catholic epistles, um, the word being universal. And they're weird, right? When you read Peter, when you read John, when you read Hebrews, when you read uh, um, uh, Jude after this, they're, they're strange. Most of us kind of know Paul pretty well. If you've been in the Advent or uh, the Episcopal Church, Paul is, is held out, and, and rightfully so, as the chief apostle. Um, but I'm thankful we have uh, these other witnesses as well that don't contradict, but to me, uh, enlighten uh, and give a new shade of uh, color and texture. Any, any closing thoughts? So next week, I do want to look more at 1 John. I have not exhausted these two letters, but I think we got the gist on some level. And I hope you'll go and read them for yourselves and kind of consider what it means in their context. And again, uh, we've done a lot of application this morning, what it might mean in our lives today. Um, but I don't want to step on toes. Any, any closing thoughts? All right, well, let's close in prayer. And next week, if you uh, plan to join us, we'll, we'll look more at those top hits again from 1 John. Today were the deep cuts. Next week, um, the, the top hits. And I think you're going to hear a lot of the similar themes coming out uh, from 1 John as well. And no surprise, uh, it's the same author. Well, let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks that you have indeed delivered to us the truth, which is your love in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, not just in this church, but throughout the world, uh, throughout your universal church, that you would bring this message of truth and love to the fore. It's not one or the other. It's both and. And we only see this in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.